So now for our special speaker today, Dr. George Yancey. He's co-founder of Mosaics, which we are a partner with. That's how we got to know Dr. Yancey. He received his PhD in sociology from the University of Texas in Austin. He's a professor at Baylor University. He has written many, many books, but his talk today is based on his brand new book being released this March, Beyond Racial Division. So please help me welcome Dr. George Yancey. Hi, I'm George Yancey. I'm a professor of sociology at Baylor University, and I've studied and written about racial issues, written books, articles. I'm a Christian, and I'm here to talk to you about whether Christianity has anything unique to offer concerning race. I believe it does. So you see, I think that good science and good theology goes together. Truth is truth. Knowledge is knowledge. And if what we believe as Christians is true, it'll bear up in the science. I'm going to talk to you about scriptures. I'm going to talk to you about studies. As I promote this idea that I believe our faith offers a balanced way, a better way than what we see out there. Polarization, the hostility, that we can do better. And we Christians should be leading the way to do better. So let's get started. We live in a racialized society. By that, what I mean is that our life experiences, our outcomes, our social relationships are impacted by our race. So I'm an African-American man. Being black means that my experiences are shaped by that. I would have different experiences if I was a white man or if I was an Asian man or if I was a Hispanic man. My social relationships, my life experiences, is shaped to some degree by the fact that I'm an African-American man. When people see me, they see a black man. This does not mean that they're going to be negative towards me. Maybe they'll, be, they'll like the fact that I'm a black man. But it does mean that my race impacts how people react to me. We live in a racialized society. We need to accept that. We need to accept that race and racism matter. Okay, so we live in a racialized society. What does that mean? Well, we know that we've had centuries of racial abuse in our society, that racism is a factor in our society. How do we handle that? What I have found in my observations is that there's two contrasting views on how we handle racism in our society. The first, basically that racism is overt. It's what one individual does to another individual. And therefore, if we want to deal with racism, we stop individuals from mistreating others based on race. Now, this is what can be called a colorblindness view. Now, the best way to deal with racism is to ignore race. If we just don't treat people differently based on race, racism ends. That's one view, one solution on how we deal with racism. The second solution is that racism is deals with social structures as well as individuals. Structural issues, institutional issues matter. So it's not enough 
simply for individuals to stop being racist to one another. We have to deal with the institutions. It's multifaceted in order to end racism. I'm gonna call this view the anti-racism view because anti-racism has been the term a lot of people have caught on the past few years. And I think it adequately describes this viewpoint. Now we have these two views of racism and I'm gonna make the argument later on that both these views come from a secular humanistic philosophy. And I know some of y'all adhere to one or another of these views. And I know that you may have a hard time with that. So bear with me as I, as I get there. But first, I'm gonna critique these views and argue why neither one of them completely works. First thing I wanna talk about is colorblindness. Why not? Why can't we just ignore race, treat each other equal, and that's the end of it? Well, that works if you presume our society is fair. If we have a fair society, we can ignore race and move on and it really doesn't matter. But if society is not fair, to ignore the discrepancies of race in our society would just make them worse. If there's a racial wound in our society, to ignore that wound won't heal the wound. It'll just fester and be worse. So the question is, is our society fair enough that we can be colorblind? There's been a lot of research on this question. A lot of research looking at how our institutions and social structures impact us. And overwhelmingly, the research says that is not. Let me give you a few examples. There's research that looks at occupational discrimination. In other words, do people of color face discrimination when they go for jobs? And they do what's called audit studies. Now, an audit study is when you take a white person and a black or Latino person, and they both apply for the same job. And what we know, and not just from one or two studies, but from dozens of studies, that when we do this, the white individual is most likely to get the call back for an interview. In other words, and by the way, this is when they control for all the qualifications of the position. So the only real difference is their race. Your race alone helps to determine whether you get called back for a job. I would say that is not fair. And we live in a society that is not fair. There's also research on what we call driving while black. Now, driving while black means that if you're an African-American, you're more likely to be pulled over by the police than if you're white. A researcher looked at the state of Ohio, four different areas, found that African-Americans do not speed any more than anyone else, but they get pulled over more than anyone else. So what we do know is that if you're an African-American, simply because you're an African-American, you're more likely to be pulled over by the police. So driving while black is real. And colorblindness says, let's ignore this. This could be fair, but we know it's not fair. We also know that residential segregation is a factor. I'm guessing, you know, I'm in Texas, so I don't know. I'm guessing in Washington, D.C., there's black areas of town and probably some Hispanic areas of town. This is residential segregation. Now, we have them here in beautiful Dallas, Texas. Even where I live in Denton, Texas, we have black areas of town and Hispanic areas of town. Now, why does that matter? There's a lot of reasons why that matters. I'm just going to go into one reason. That segregation, as a researcher has found out, is linked to the different ways 
kids get education in our school system. In other words, African-Americans and Hispanic-Americans go to lower quality schools because they're segregated into areas that that's where those schools serve. So you're in a black area, you go to the black school, and the black school is of lower quality. I happened, when I was in high school, I went to a school that was predominantly Hispanic. And I enjoyed my high school. My high school did not send a lot of kids on to college, unfortunately. When I went off to college, a local college, I was one of only two or three kids in my class to go on to college. What my high school did was help kids to become good workers, literally build houses. It's mostly Hispanics who went to the school, remember. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but if one group can send their kids to schools and they learn how to build houses, and the other kids send their kids to schools and learn how to go to college, who begins to control the society? Just a final piece of evidence. There's research on how the healthcare system treats people of color. And what we know from this research is that people of color are not treated as well as whites. This research that looked at 39 different studies and 26 times found evidence of racism in the ways people of color were treated by what they're prescribed, by the, the way people actually talk to them, things of this nature. So the experience of a person of color in our healthcare system is different from that of a white person. All of this suggests that if we just ignore these racial differences, they don't go away. We can't just be colorblind to them. Somehow we have to address them. And for that reason, colorblindness fails. Colorblindness is not the solution. Maybe it's anti-racism. After all, with anti-racism, you are addressing these problems that was pointed out by the research. So, is it a solution? First, let's try to understand what anti-racism is. What I did to understand anti-racism and what people mean by that is I read a lot of anti-racism books. And I found certain things. And let me go over some of them. First, anti-racism is about being proactive in dealing with racism. We don't sit back and wait for racism. We look for it, and when we find it, we're proactive in how we're going to get rid of it. That's what an anti-racist would think, that we're going to be proactive in dealing with racism. So that's one of the first aspects of anti-racism. Another aspect of anti-racism is that it's very concerned with the advantages whites have, seeing those advantages as unfair. Things such as white privilege, you probably have heard about that. That is a component of anti-racism, how we're going to address white privilege, how we're going to address the advantages whites have in our society, the advantages we saw in the research I just cited. Third, anti-racists argue that we have to take action to dismantle all aspects of racism in our society. That we can't be satisfied just because people are not overtly racist. We can't be satisfied because people don't use the N-word or, or people are, are kind of kind. No, there's institutional structural racism. We must dismantle all of it for anti-racists to be happy. Next, anti-racists talk about ending whiteness. Now, this could be a confusing term. I get that. And I want to be clear, anti-racists are not saying ending whiteness means some sort of genocide, right? It's not that. What they mean by whiteness is the advantages in our society that accrue to whites because of our social structures and institutions. And they attach that to this generalized term called whiteness. So it's not about personally hating white people. 
It's about ending these advantages, ending these structures, which they categorize as whiteness. And then finally, anti-racists argue that whites need to listen to people of color instead of trying to guide and lead people of color. That whites need to allow people of color to have a say and do more listening, not take the role of leadership in tearing down racism. So this is what, generally speaking, can be called anti-racism. Okay, sounds good, right? What does our research say about actually doing this sort of stuff, doing diversity training, where, which are more anti-racist in, 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 in scope, training whites about privilege? What does research say about this? There's been a lot of research on this. Here's some of the highlights of it. First thing, we know that diversity training has little long-term effects on prejudice reduction. What happens is you go to diversity training and you come back and we get immediate bump. Kind of like you go off to a Bible camp and you come back and you're on cloud nine living for the Lord. And six months later, you're back to doing what you're doing. Not all of us, but hey, maybe I'm telling myself. The same thing with diversity training. What happens is people get trained and their pressure reduction goes down for a little bit. And then six months later, it's back to where it was. So we have to ask the question. Are we really making changes that are long-lasting? It appears not. Second bit of research. Diversity training can create a backlash against people of color. This is documented in research that, especially if it's not done well, what will happen is that we'll train people with diversity training, and instead of them appreciating people of color, especially white, they'll actually be mad at people of color for this diversity training. So not only does it not have a positive effect, it could actually make things worse. Here's another aspect, another piece of literature to consider. Research has shown that when you confront whites about privilege, you do not make them more welcoming to people of color. They do not feel better about people of color because they learn about white privilege. But what you do is you make them harsher, perhaps more marginalizing to marginalized whites. So what happens is that, especially white progressives, they get trained in white privilege and they already feel good about people of color. But when it comes to poor whites or whites on drugs or, or things of that nature, they have lower esteem for them. If this research is accurate, what it means is talking about privilege, what it might do is make us less sympathetic to marginalized people as a whole. Not necessarily people of color, but to marginalized whites. That's a problem. And then finally, there's research that shows that when you try to force managers, white managers, to hire people of color, things such as grievance committees or diversity training, mandatory diversity training, when you do that, you actually five years later have fewer managers of color they actually are less likely to hire managers of color. On the other hand, if you invite them to help solve the problem of hiring managers of color, five years later you have more managers of color. One of the aspects of anti-racism is this desire to try to force people to do the right thing often can backfire, and you can actually get worse results. Now, I think there's another reason why, though, neither colorblindness nor anti-racism work. 
And my argument is that they don't work because they don't fit with a Christian worldview. Now, let me explain that. The way I see it is both of them lack something incredibly important. And what they both lack is an appreciation of human depravity. Now, you're going to say, well, we appreciate human depravity. We know that whiteness is evil, or we appreciate human depravity. We know we have to get rid of overt racism if you're supporting colorblindness. We appreciate human depravity. And what I would argue is that there's an appreciation of human depravity for some people. But human depravity affects all of us. If you're white, it affects you. If you're black, it affects you. If you're Hispanic, Asian, male, female, human depravity affects all of us. That's part of our Christian faith. And when we understand that, we can begin to fashion a better solution. But first, let me go ahead and just give some evidence that the Bible talks about human depravity. I don't think this is a hard sermon to preach, to talk about human depravity in the Bible. But just in case there's any doubt, let me give a few verses on that. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continuously. Genesis 6.5 None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Romans 3, 10, and 11 Behold, I was brought forth in inequity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Psalms 51.5 Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. So what's the implication of this? To sort of illustrate the implication of this, what I'd like to do is contrast the notion of human depravity with the notion of human perfectibility. Human perfectibility was a concept I learned in graduate school because basically it's the idea that we can make society perfect. Humans can become perfect. In a secular ideology, in a world without God, we have to rely on humans. And it's up to us to create a perfect society. This is one of the basis of the Enlightenment movement and a lot of the secular philosophy we have today. So you can see that a Christian worldview is at odds with the view that we can create perfection without God. There are implications to human human perfectibility. One of which, that we can use education to make humans better. It's an assumption that if we educate people more, they'll become better. We can educate them to become less racist. We can educate them to become more tolerant. We can educate them into all these great virtues. That's a common notion among many individuals who buy into to the ideas of humanism, of secular ideologies. Education will make us better. Another notion is rationality, that we are inherently rational, and thus we'll rationally choose a better approach if given the right options. And when we don't choose a better approach is because we've been given bad options. Our rationality, our human rationality, is seen as something that we can treasure, that we can uplift. Now, I got to tell you, I have a problem with this one. You see, I have three boys. I have a six-year-old. I have, by the time this rolls, a five-year-old and a three-year-old. And they are not rational at all. 
And the notion that if we can just make them more rational, that they'll be, they'll act better. I just don't buy it because kids are selfish. That's also, oh, that's just the way it is. And that's okay. They'll learn. They'll grow. But the notion that they're rational, I just don't buy into that. When we think about that, though, if you believe this, if you believe the right education and they were rational and will take it the right direction, and if we have the right insights, then if we take our insights, be it colorblindness, be it anti-racism, and if people accept our insights, at that point, we'll create this perfectible society, this perfect society. Both groups do this. Clearly, we saw with anti-racism, there's a push to make people be less racist, to confront whiteness, to, to do the, tackle these issues. But it's true with colorblindness as well. About a year ago, I was on Facebook, and I was just posting about raising boys of color. I have three boys. And I posted about how do I talk to these boys about racism? And I just put it out there for other parents who are raising kids of color. And I got some good advice, but I also got some people who messaged me and said, why are you talking to your kids about race? Just training them to be good men, good Christian men. That's all you have to worry about. So it's not enough for them that they are colorblind. To create this perfectible society, I have to be colorblind as well. Now, I won't go into why that does not work for me, but I'm just using it to point out that both anti-racism and colorblindness follows this model of trying to convince people to follow our path to perfectibility. The problem is human depravity suggests that those who articulate this model, they have depravity too. And why should we trust anyone to follow a model? Why should we not suspect that what happens is our selfishness helps to generate the path we want to go on? So I want the path that's going to be good for people like me. You want the path that will be good for people like you. That's natural. That's depravity. How do we deal with that? Human depravity would suggest we are inherently selfish. And that cannot be taken away with by education. If we think that all we have to do is educate someone and then they will become a better person, we're wrong. A colleague of mine did some very interesting research. And what he found was among whites, the more educated a white person was, the more likely they were to say that they would live in a neighborhood that's integrated and send their kids to an integrated school. And then he looked at data. And what he found out was the more education a white person had, the less likely they were to send their kids to an integrated school and the less likely they were to live in an integrated neighborhood. In other words, education didn't make them a better moral person. It made them a person that was able to cover up what we could call racism. Only by accounting for our own selfishness, our own propensity to look out for ourselves, can we move beyond solutions that serve one group but not another? Can we find solutions that serve all of us? Maybe we don't get everything. Maybe we don't get everything. But maybe we get enough that we can go forward. We have to do that by holding each other accountable. And that is where I think we have to go as Christians. 
We have to engage in collaborative conversations. We have to engage in dialogue where we try to find solutions because I need people who are not like me to hold me in check. And those of you who are not like me need to have a person like me to hold you in check. We can say, well, maybe God will give us the answers. God will give me the ultimate answer. As a social scientist, I got to say that a lot of times the way we interpret God's answers fits what we want to do. So we have to be very careful about that. The way we do this on earth is to engage in these conversations and find solutions that serve everyone. So what I propose is what I call a mutual accountability model. We're all mutually accountable to each other. It recognizes that we have a sin nature. Now, sin nature persuades us to do things that act in our interests with less regard for others. And given that, we need to be accountable to everyone else. Everyone needs to be accountable to everyone else. Our solutions may not be mutual. That's true. But to enter into a conversation that's productive and not destructive is the responsibility of everyone. Now, you have the right to ask, is this something that you have just thought up or is there any empirical evidence? Because you came out with all these studies showing why colorblindness didn't work and why anti-racism didn't work. And I will admit, we don't have studies that are precisely on racial issues, on whether what I call collaborative conversations would work with racial issues. But there's other evidence that shows that this has a lot more potential than colorblindness or anti-racism. First, we know, and there's a lot of research on this, that interracial contact under the right conditions actually lessens bias. So the more I'm in contact with people under the right conditions, uh, conditions where we're equal, where we're working together, under the right conditions, that contact lessens my bias towards those individuals and lessens the bias of all of us towards individuals. So to the degree that we can have productive contact, we'll actually feel better about each other. Second, there's research that shows that having a common group identity also decreases bias towards one another's. Let me put it this way. Now, I assume that most of y'all are fans of the Washington football team. And don't worry, I'm not going to pick on you about your nickname. But I assume you're fans of the Washington football team. So you have a group identity when they play. When they are playing and you have all those fans together, you go to the game, they have all those fans together. The other differences don't matter. You know what? I bet you even being a Republican or a Democrat does not matter when you're all in that stadium rooting on the Washington football team because you have a group identity. And that's yet for temporarily you have less bias towards other people who are in your group. Likewise, when we see ourselves as part of a larger group, then those in our group are included. And if we can expand that group, well, you can see the implications of that. So the more we can see each other as part of the same group, the less bias we're going to have. So communication I'm talking about builds community. I fear that colorblindness and anti-racism creates more polarization. Third, there's research on families that engage in collaborative conversations, have a collaborative style. And these families bond together much more so than other families. The more that we can learn how to collaborate with one another, 
have healthy dialogue, the more we bond together. And then finally, there's work that shows that under collaborative conversations, when we engage in this sort of dialogue, we, you actually get volition. So imagine, if you will, if we engage in collaborative conversation, come up with a solution on whatever problem we're talking about. Imagine instead of imposing a solution on other people, we collaborate with them and they work with us to solve the problems. I think this is one of the reasons why that study on managers who are racial minorities matters. When we bring in white managers and say, we're not going to tell you what to do, but here's our goal. Help us to accomplish that goal. Now we're collaborating. And now instead of sabotaging, they volitionally come in and help. So the research suggests that this approach offers a lot better of an opportunity to bring us together than the other approaches that we've looked at so far. Now, what are the implications of this approach? Let me just name a few that I observe. First thing, this approach suggests that no one has all the right answers. I mean, if human depravity means anything, it means none of us get it totally right. We must have enough humbleness to admit that we could be wrong. Look, I've been studying racial issues for decades. You know, I've published articles and books on this. I'm not bragging, I'm just saying that's what I've done. But I have to recognize, and I do, that I get things wrong on racial issues. I've changed my mind on certain approaches because I've listened to other people and realized that despite all my studies, they bring in ideas that I hadn't considered before and I must consider them. A second implication is that we must be intentional in having these conversations. Now, hear me out. Conversations can be productive. Conversations can be destructive. If you want to know how they be destructive, do you have a Twitter account? We know that conversations can be destructive. So it's not just enough we're going to talk. We have to learn how to talk in productive, useful ways, rather in ways that tear us apart, that tear us down. Third, the needs of everyone has to be respected. Now, do not get me wrong, because I know someone's going to say, well, not everyone has the same needs, and that's true. And we're looking at centuries of racial abuse, and I suspect a lot of our solutions have to take that into consideration. And so if that means that people of color, their needs get some higher priority, I'm good with that. But what we can't do is say, well, whites have no needs whatsoever, so we ignore them. That's what gets us in the situation where people start sabotaging our efforts. Everyone's needs must be respected or else this will not work. Everyone gets to bring their needs to the table and then we begin to figure out how we go forward from this. Fourth implication. There are a couple of skills that we have to develop and that's active listening and effective communication. We need to learn how to listen to people in ways that where we understand where they're coming from. Because how can we understand their needs if we've not heard them out? And we have to communicate in ways that our listener can hear us. There's research that shows that when someone feels threatened, they literally cannot hear what the other person is saying. Let me give you a couple examples of how this can manifest itself. And I'll give you one from what whites tend to do and one from what people of color tend to do. A lot of times my white friends will say something like, 
you know what, George? I don't see your race. Now, I know that their intention is good. All right? I know their intention is good. What they're trying to convey is, I'm not going to treat you worse because you're black. And that's great. I don't want you to treat me worse because I'm black. But what I hear as an African-American is that this important part of my identity, not the most important part, that's being a child of God, but an important part of my identity, my race, means nothing to you. That person did not mean to denigrate me in that way, but that's what I hear. And for many people of color, they can't hear what you say after you've said that. It happens the other way, too. I find that when people of color bring up things such as white supremacy, uh, when they talk about racism in situations that are not overtly racist, that what that does for a lot of whites is that it shuts them out because they feel threatened. White supremacy, and I understand how academics are using that term. White supremacy, for most people who are not academics, though, conjures up the Ku Klux Klan, conjures up the Nazis. And people think, I am not a Nazi. How dare you associate me with Nazis? And they turn off. There are better ways to talk about those issues. And if you want to reach people, you learn how to talk to people in ways they can hear. So we have to learn how to listen and how to communicate in productive ways. And finally, final application, we seek win-win solutions, not win-lose solutions. If you feel happy about the solution, that's great. If I feel happy, that's great. It's not a game where we win, you lose. Kids do that. Kids fight over toys because I win, you lose. We have to grow up from that. We should seek solutions that everybody is happy. Everyone's working together and we're all moving forward. I know that this is not as detailed as I would like it to be in this short period of time. And there's much more to be talked about. But I hope that this gives you an idea of a different way we can go. A Christian way. A way that's grounded in the Bible. As Christians, we should be taking the lead in this. Now, don't get me wrong. This approach, conversation, it doesn't matter whether you're a Christian or not. It's the right way to go. If we're going to build a bridge between us, we've got to have this sort of conversation. We Christians, we know about human depravity. We know the importance of seeing our own flaws, of having others hold us in check. But everyone can benefit from that. And if we take the lead and others join with us, we can start ending this polarization between us. And we can reach out to other individuals. And we can bring part of this ugly chapter or a racialized society to an end. It's going to be hard work. It's going to take some time. It's not going to happen overnight. But we have a way we can go. If we just do what I believe our, our worldview tells us to do. Thank you for having me. God bless you.